Hey, welcome. So glad you're joining us here online. Uh, I'm Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. If you happen to be watching from somewhere other than uh, Northeast Ohio, uh, we had snow this week, all right? So we uh, put our snow shovels away prematurely, and we're still a little bitter about it, right? But hey, we're glad you're joining us. If I've never met you, hopefully I'll get a chance to do that. Uh, But we've been talking about the church. Uh, we, that's what we've been talking about on weekend conversations here. Uh, the first thing we said, what is the church? And we have said this, that the church is not a building that you show up to once a week. It's not a service that you attend. But what the church is, is it's a community of people. And when the Bible talks about the church, it's literally saying it's a community of people. They're called out by God who follow Jesus as their king and are filled with his spirit. And so that's why we've been in the book of Acts. The church is a community of people who are called out by God and they follow their king. And they're going to stand distinct from their culture, right? They're going to stand different from their culture. They're called out by God. Here's what we said last week. They're not trying on purpose to be weird, right? (laughs) All of us could say, man, I know some weird Christians, right? They're on purpose or intentionally trying to be weird. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is this. It stands to reason that if you and I follow Jesus, if a church, a community of people follows Jesus as their king, that there's going to be some things that stand out, maybe look weird in the culture in which we live. It makes me think of a a quote Pastor Aiden kind of shared with us. It's been several weeks back. It's a quote that actually is pretty convicting. It's by a guy who's a self-declaimed atheist, right? His name's Ben Sixsmith. And he's talking about, as he kind of looks at Christianity, that for a lot of people who profess uh, Christianity, profess to belong to the church, that really what they profess is this Christianity uh, with a twist. There's a twist of Christianity. And he says something interesting, and I want to read it to you. This is an atheist. He says, I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. But he says this, still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. That's an interesting statement, right? That's an interesting statement from somebody who doesn't even profess to be religious. I think what he's saying is, like, if you're really going to follow Jesus and this thing is really true, then there's going to be some things that are going to stand out, right? Make you distinct. That's what a church is. It's called out. All of this begs the question then, <clears throat> we looked at this last week, we said, okay, if that's what the church is, then what should the church do or be? And that's why we're in the book of Acts, because the book of Acts describes this called out kingdom community called the church. And the book of Acts is descriptive, okay? It's descriptive, and it is a transition book. Think of it this way. The book of Acts is a transition book, and it transitions the story from God dwelling on the earth in the body of his son, Jesus, to God dwelling on the earth through his spirit in a body of people called his church. The book of Acts is that. And this community is called out and stands distinct from his culture. Here's what we've looked at so far, and then I want to jump into what I want to look at this weekend, okay? So far we said this, that the church 
is a kingdom community, and it's a community that is already set apart with a mission in a culture that seems to always be searching for a cause. Pastor Aiden led us so well in that, right? Uh, we said this uh, last week. We said uh, that the church is a called-out community, kingdom community, that is uniquely devoted in a culture that is unusually distracted, that we're devoted, and there's certain things, right? Here's what I want to look at briefly today, okay? So you can get your pen ready and write this down. That the church is a community committed to a kind orthodoxy in a culture of ideological idolatry. That's a mouthful, right? That's a mouthful, right? Uh, let's get our head around this and then let's look at the book of Acts. We live in a culture with a lot of different ideologies, right? And those ideologies, might I say, I don't need to convince you this, uh, those ideologies are polarizing us all over the place. Uh, you can look up the definition of ideology, but an ideology is just a, a shared beliefs of a certain group of people. It, they influence the way they think, act, or view the world. Uh, another word that maybe you've heard is its worldview. Here's what's true about every ideology. Every ideology has its own kind of salvation story. You just need to know that, right? It has its own salvation story. Uh, it has its idea of what evil is, and it sets up what its gospel is. Here's what the good news is to save us from that evil, and here's what it looks like if we would just to embrace that gospel. Every ideology has some sort of salvation story, so to speak. Uh, in his book, uh, Political Visions and Illusions, David Coises, and I think I'm saying his name right, identifies there's five, and there's probably more, but five different ideologies. Main umbrella ideologies, uh, liberalism, conservatism, nationalism, democracy, socialism. Uh, but here's what he says. I'm going to read you some things he says in his book. He says, all of these ideologies uh, might get some things right about the world. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have so many followers. But, listen close, what they get wrong, these ideologies, according to the author, is that they begin from the standpoint of human autonomy. They emphasize self-direction. Governing yourself according to a law that you choose. This means that they are not just ideologies. Listen close. They're idolatries. They take God out of the picture. Or worse, they turn him into something that the sovereign individual can choose or not choose to worship. And so God is no longer sovereign Lord of creation. He's just another option on the menu. He goes on to say this, every ideology is based on taking something out of creation's totality and raising it above that creation and making the latter revolve around it and serve it. It's based on the assumption that this idol, whatever the ideology is, has capacity to save us from the real or perceived evil in the world. Ideologies, he says, are modern idolatries. Now, Augustine said this, I, I love this quote, worth writing down. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. And here's what I know. Our ideologies are what polarize us, right? Uh, Karl Barth said it this way, that too often we measure and evaluate others only from the standpoint of whether they are supporters of our ideology or whether they might become such or whether they might at least be useful to it even without consenting to it or whether they must be fought as enemies because they don't embrace it. Our ideologies, they polarize us. 
And here's what happens too often in the church, we begin to identify with these cultural ideologies over and above the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of worshiping God, here's what happens many times in the church. Instead of worshiping God, we use God to promote our ideologies. I'll say that again. Instead of worshiping God, we use God to promote our ideologies, and we even use spiritual lingo and symbols to identify with that ideology, whether it's on the right or the left. I mean, you pick your picture, right? I mean, whether it's on the right or the left, speaking, right? And so we'll use symbols to support our ideology and we'll somehow integrate it with a form of spirituality. So we'll hold a Bible so as to give some uh, credence to our ideology or the, the priest collar, which used to mean purity and set apart, you know, will kind of integrate with a symbol that represents a certain ideology. Let me ask a question. Is it any wonder why our culture is confused? Is it any wonder? I would suggest to you in many cases, these ideologies have come at a cost. And the cost is no less than killing the very message of Jesus in our culture. Here's the deal. Instead of Jesus being Savior, Lord, and King, too often he is relegated to a cheerleader or a champion of our ideology. He becomes our ideological mascot. And too often the church is embracing ideologies and idols instead of making the truth and message of Jesus as its primary focus in gospel. Acts 3. Acts 3. That's why I want to look at a story in Acts 3. I want to show you something, okay? So I got your attention, all right? We're going to have a pretty, listen, we're going to have a pretty intense conversation. Uh, Acts 3, uh, here's how Acts 3 begins. A story about Peter and John. They go to the temple to pray, and there's a man there who was lame from birth. He's begging, right? Peter and John come by, and he, he, he wants to know if they'll contribute, right? They'll contribute. And so Peter and John look at him, and he's expecting to get some money. And Peter and John say to him, hey, silver and gold we don't have, but such as we have, we're going to give to you. Reach out, grab the guy's hand, and all of a sudden the guy who's lame from birth can walk. He stands to his feet. He doesn't just stand. He starts walking, and then he starts jumping around and leaping and praising God. And it's fascinating. The crowd is amazed. The guy's hanging on to Peter and John. All of a sudden, the crowd starts to gather because they're interested. It's the very first post-Jesus miracle, Acts 3. Very first post-Jesus miracle. And then Peter, when he got this crowd, <clears throat> preaches a message. Here's what he says in verse 12. You have your Bibles open to Acts 3. Look at this. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. 
This guy's healed. And he's like, hey, listen, you guys can all see this. And the miracle of healing this guy had an upward purpose to it. It like brought glory to God, but it also authenticated the message of Jesus. Verse 17, Peter goes on. He says, now you fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, and then turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. There's an inward purpose to the miracle, and that's to point to a greater healing that we all need, right? Every miracle has that purpose. The purpose wasn't just to heal the guys who could walk. There's this purpose. And that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes from God to restore everything. God's going to restore everything. Kingdom is now, not yet, as he promised long ago through his prophets. This miracle had a, had a forward purpose to it. It was pointing to this kingdom of God when he's going to restore everything. And then he says this, for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your people, and you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Something interesting here, guys. I, I, let's just stop there for, for the sake of now. I think we need to make our first observation. And the first observation that I think we need to make is go back and look at verses 13 through 15. Look at what he says. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. He says, we're witnesses of this. What's the point? Here's the point. I want you to write it down. That a culture, ready, committed to ideological idolatry eventually kills the author of life's message. That's the point. You see it in there. You're saying, Dan, help me understand that a little more. Remember the crowd he's talking to. Remember, in their ideological passion, what did they want to do? They wanted to overthrow Rome. And they wanted to control with power. And their ideological passion and zeal, here's what it did. In their ideological passion and zeal, they ended up killing Jesus. And in killing Jesus, they instead decided to associate with Barabbas. That's who they had released a zealot, a murderer. Ideologies and, and ideological idolatry makes strange bedfellows. <laughs> it just does. Like, like in their ideological passion, that's what they did. Listen to me, I'm gonna tell you this. This is fascinating to me. Stay with me on this. That is exactly what ideological idolatry does. And it does it in the church. When ideological idolatry creeps into the church and we begin to put religious symbols to prop up our ideological idolatry, we end up eventually killing the message of Jesus, the author of life. Uh, let me tell you what I mean. It happens when on the left, when, when they're liberalism, so somebody like liberalism, whatever that is. When I begin to eradicate sin, <clears throat> and make acceptance and tolerance the gospel that overlooks sin and redefines sin, I kill the message of Jesus because I no longer need the message of a savior who died for my sin. What I need is a God who tolerates me 
the way I want to be. That's what I need. When I redefine sin, that's what I need. I don't need a Jesus dying for my sin. I need a God who just tolerates me, endorses me the way I want to be. But it happens on the right. Come on, let's just do this, right? It happens on the right. You, know, you call whatever you want. But when good things become ultimate things, I begin using God to control people in order to get power to legislate those people to do the right and righteous things, the things that I believe are right and righteous. And when I legislate them to do right and righteous things, I bypass the need for a gospel of Jesus who died, was buried, and rose again. And all of a sudden, I legislate behavior modification. And you know what I don't need at that point? Spiritual transformation. It's interesting, isn't it? Right, we can stop there. I mean, that's, that's enough to digest for today, isn't it? <laughs> but you know what's interesting is these guys are, are, are preaching this message, and it didn't go well. You look at chapter 4. You got your Bibles open there. Chapter 4, the beginning is the, the religious leaders, they throw them in jail because they're preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, they put him in jail, but a revival outside the jail is breaking out. You know, 5,000 people come to Christ. And the next day they bring the boys in, Peter and John, and they're going to question them. And look at this, and I'm going to make some observation. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Community called out by God, following Jesus as king, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. So this is the religious leaders. If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, so we were being kind, man was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and that, you could hear a pin drop at this point, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus, they said, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Then they say this, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by, what, by which we must be saved. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. Why? They took note that they had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man, like, what are we going to do? He's healed standing here. There was nothing they could say. So here's what they did. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these guys? What are we going to do with them? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Verse 18. Then they called him in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John said, nah, it's a line too far. He said, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Like, you, we just can't help it, right? After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Listen, what I said at the beginning is a kind 
orthodoxy. Just write this down somewhere. A, when a church demonstrates a kind orthodoxy, I'm going to explain that in a minute, it creates a paradox. And the paradox it creates, you see in chapter 4 here, is they don't know what to do with these guys. Like They want them to stop preaching this message, but they're like, but this guy was healed, and it feels like there's something good going on, and yet your message is bothering us. It's interesting, isn't it? Creates an interesting paradox. Uh, what's the point? I would write this down. I think what we see about the church is this. So it's a community committed to the orthodox truth of the message of Jesus found in the Bible. That's the church, right? Here's what orthodox, what's orthodoxy? Somebody's like, I've never heard of that word. It means right teaching or belief. That's what it means. Write that down somewhere. I, I want you to know it. I thought about not using it, but... You need, that's what it is. It's right teaching or belief. We talked about this last week. The church is a called out community convinced of the message of Jesus found in the Bible. We are committed to the orthodox truth that is the right teaching. Uh, the church is committed. We are convinced that the Bible is God's word to us, that God is who he says he is, that he created the world right side up, and it didn't take long for man to turn the world upside down by his willful rejection of God, his willful rebellion of God. But we believe Jesus is the king sent from God who came with a right side up message, but he didn't just come with a right side up message, that he is the king who literally laid down his life, died, was buried, and rose again, and that in him and in him alone is salvation from sin. That's orthodoxy. That's the orthodox teaching of the Bible. That's what the apostles are doing. Look, look at what you find, verses 10 and 10 through 12. They look at these guys and say, you guys need to know this. It's by the name of Jesus whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, the once dead Jesus is now alive, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you rejected. He's become the cornerstone. God's building his church on the cornerstone of Jesus. And then he says that salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter, got to get this, guys, is declaring the orthodox teaching of the church that believes the message of Jesus and that in Christ there is one name, one way to be saved from your sin into the family of God. Now listen, that's not necessarily always a popular message in, in our culture. But, but the orthodox teaching of the Bible is this. Peter says it here. Jesus said it in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The gospel, no slide for this, but, but just write this down somewhere. The gospel is the most exclusive, inclusive message on the planet. Saying, Dan, help me understand that. that. They're declaring this exclusive, inclusive message. Here, here's what I mean. It's exclusive. There's one way. For some of you, it might be the first time ever hearing this. The Bible is clear. There is one way for you to be saved from your sins into the family of God to have a hope forever. One way. You're saying, what's that way? Go to church? Nope. Clean up my life? Nope. One way. And that's by trusting what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross that when he died, he died that death in your place for your sin and paid your price. 
And the way for you to have salvation from your sin is to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. But to realize he didn't stay dead, he rose again. And to trust him and surrender your life to him as your Lord and King. That's what Peter's saying. It's the most exclusive message on the planet, but it's the most inclusive. You're saying, what do you mean by that? All are invited. All are welcome. Whosoever will. All are invited. Who did he die for? Some of you are sitting there, certainly not me. I've lived such an awful life. Some of you, maybe you're thinking that. All are invited. Doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what you're upbringing. Doesn't matter if this is your first time ever hearing it. Doesn't matter if you've heard it a thousand times. All are invited. It's the most exclusive, inclusive message on the planet. The church is this called out community that is committed to the orthodox truth of the message of Jesus found in the Bible, God's revelation to us. It's a church. We don't have to apologize for being committed to that, right? We're not committed to some floating ideology. We're committed to the truth of the gospel. Now, something interesting though. Okay, so so a lot of people know churches like, man, fire and brimstone, man, they're committed to the truth, right? And like, oh, and they're angry and well, you know, whatever. Well, look at this, verse 13, Acts 4. When they, the people, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they run schooled ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And what did they notice? They saw the, the man who had been healed standing there. They, they saw the result of their act of kindness. That they could have passed by. This, this beggar had tons of people pass by him. They could have passed by him. But, but they looked at Peter and John like, wow, there's something. They got this courage and this man standing here and the result of their kindness. What does it tell us about the church? I want you to write it down this way. I think the church is a community committed to living lives of courageous kindness that turn the lights bright on Jesus. That's what's going on here. They had the courage to be kindly convicted. They were committed to the orthodox truth of the Bible and the message of Jesus and their kindness, their courageous kindness, you know what it did? It turned the lights bright on Jesus. What did these people notice about them? They noticed their courage. They were just ordinary men. The thing that stood out, they'd been with Jesus. Don't, if you're a follower of Christ, isn't that what you would want people to say about you? I think they spend a lot of time with Jesus. They look kind of like Jesus. Listen, 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 this is so important. And then we're gonna make some application. A community, as our community, our acts of love and kindness, you know what they do? They turn the lights bright on Jesus. And, and, and they become, listen, listen, they become little miracles in our dark world. Sometimes we can get kind of hung up on the, this miracle. There's about a dozen of them in the book of Acts. But remember, Acts is a descriptive book. Doesn't mean we're gonna go around uh, doing everything they did in here. It's a transitionary book. They didn't have the New Testament. We, we do. Those miracles fade as, as a time in terms of in the book of Acts, right? I'm not saying God doesn't still do things like this today. What I'm saying is this, is that today our acts of kindness serve the same purpose as this miracle in Acts 3. They do. As followers of Christ, they have, a, they have an upward purpose just like this miracle, what did Jesus say? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. 
They have an inward purpose. Uh, here's what I would say, that our small acts of grace to help people in need point to an ultimate act of grace of a God who gave us our greatest help for our greatest need. Uh, they have a forward purpose. Uh, they point to the fact that we want to be representatives of the kingdom right now because there's a kingdom coming. When every tear is going to be wiped away, all things are going to be made new, right? Like our, our acts of kindness become these small miracles in, in the middle of a dark world. The church, guys, is a called out community who follows Jesus as king. We're filled with his spirit, right? We're equipped with his message. Here's what it means, okay? And then I want to give you an application. It means we can be kind and convicted. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. We can be convicted of the truth and the kindest people on the planet. It means, it means this, that if we are a community committed to this kind orthodoxy, it means that we can focus on this. We can focus on turning the lights on versus simply complaining about the dark. That's a different sermon, right? But, but if we're going to be a community of kind orthodoxy, you know what our focus is going to be? Turning the lights on, the gospel and Jesus, instead of just complaining about the dark. A lot of us, if we're honest, we get preoccupied complaining about the dark. Oh, what's going on around us? You know what these guys did? They, they turned the lights bright on Jesus. It means this, it means that instead of using God, listen close, this might be worth writing down, instead of using God to make a point, instead of using God as a mascot for our ideologies, it means we can worship God in a way that makes a difference in our life and maybe even in the lives of the people that we rub shoulders with. If we're going to be a community of kind orthodoxy, it means you and I can love people who don't always believe what we believe. Uh-oh. That's what it means. So for the next five, ten minutes, can, can we just do a little exercise together? Can we just do this? How do you and I drive this into the raw moments and issues of things that maybe are dividing our country? Can we try? Can we try to just take one particular instance and kind of run this ribbon through and just see how it works out? And then you can apply it to other issues. Um, let's pick an easy one. Let's talk about how this plays out with the LGBTQ community and the conversation around that. Let's just start easy, right? The lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community whose voice... Uh, probably over the years has come from the margins and now is in the mainstream, right, of our culture. And the church, quite frankly, has struggled with how do we respond? Just to be honest with you. Uh, this topic has received a lot of attention. Unfortunately, it's generated, I think, more heat than light. And some of you are very aware there's a major bill in front of Congress right now, and that's not the purpose of my talk, but it's something that is very much in the mainstream at the forefront. As we engage, I want to apply this idea of being a community of kind orthodoxy, right, to this issue of homosexuality. I want to start by acknowledging this. Some of you watching this 
today, wherever you're watching it, you may be uh, in a gay lifestyle right now. And, and I just want you to know this. I'm so glad you're watching. Thank you for watching this far into the, the talk. I mean that. And I hope you'll continue to watch for the next several minutes. And, and I feel honored that you would, you would watch and spend time listening to what we have to say. Uh, others of you watching this have spent your entire life wrestling with same-sex attraction or even sexual identity. And I'm glad that you can engage in this conversation with us. Some of you right now have family members in this lifestyle or even looking to get married and, and you don't know what to do and you're struggling. And some of you, for some of you, this topic I'm going to talk about is politically charged. Others of you are dogmatic and some of you are wishy-washy on the topic. Some of you feel uncomfortable that I'm going to talk about this for the next few minutes, right? Uh, and there's others of you, you don't feel uncomfortable, you want to just stay tuned to make sure I say the right things. Uh, in parentheses, that means agree with what uh, it is that you would say, right? And, uh, and you'll let me know if I don't, right? And I'm happy uh, to hear from you that way. My email is jcarry at graceohio.org. Just kidding. Um, but here's what I want to ask. I, I simply ask that you listen with a humble heart an objective mind that you resist jumping to conclusions and any preconceived assumptions. Let me talk to several groups of you, and then I want to tell you how this fleshes out. First, to those of you who are gay that may be watching this, or maybe you've struggled with same-sex attraction, or you've been the objects of hatred and meanness from those in the Christian church, I want to say I'm truly sorry that the Church of Christ has not demonstrated the same compassion and grace our leader displayed when he walked the earth. And I want to address this in a manner that demonstrates the spirit and heart of my leader, Jesus. Uh, second, I want to talk to those of you who are part of the Church of Jesus Christ, and I want to say I'm sorry. I I'm sorry for weak-kneed leadership that many times has characterized those leading the church across our country. Leadership that has chosen to evade discussions like this. I'm sorry that uh, more times leaders in the church have not had the courage to speak the truth without compromise, listen, yet full of compassion on this topic. Uh, how does the community of Jesus, a community of kind orthodoxy, navigate this? Well, write these words. They, they navigate it with kindness and conviction. That's what it means to have a kind orthodoxy the kindness and a conviction, right? And our conviction, what we're convinced of, is what leads to our kindness. First, here's what I mean. Conviction. What I mean by that is my conviction of what is truth comes from God's will made known in his word. I'm convinced that this is God's word. And in, in, in here, I hear the design and the desire of God the God who made me. And this book tells me that God's design and his desire, you ready, is rooted in creation. It was redeemed at the cross and it's going to be restored in the coming kingdom. That's, that's the arc of this book. God's design and his desire, rooted in creation, redeemed at the cross, restored at the coming kingdom. When it comes to this issue of homosexuality, Romans chapter 1 is, is a passage, New Testament, Paul. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity. 
for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who's forever praised. That's idolatry. Because of this, God gave them over the shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were, were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Listen, lean in. God makes clear that homosexuality is not his desire or his design. It's contrary to nature. God's design in creation. Uh, you might be asking, Dan, are you saying that homosexuality is a sin? Yes. But hear me say this. Homosexuality is a sin among other sexual sins. It's a sin among other... It's not just a matter of homosexuality being wrong or sin. It's more about the fact that marriage and sex are sacred in God's design and his desire. God designed marriage to be one man and one woman in a covenant of love together. God created marriage to be a beautiful and powerful picture of the story of Jesus and the gospel. And sex is meant to be reserved for a husband and a wife in a covenant relationship of marriage. Homosexuality is a sin because it violates not only his design, but also it misses out on the heart of God and his desire. God wants and desires something for you and I. Homosexuality is a violation of not just his design, but his desire, his good desire for us. And that means homosexuality is a sin among other sexual sins. It's a sin, just like premarital sex outside of the covenant of marriage. The Bible word for that is fornication. It's a sin among other sexual sins, just like sex with someone other than who you are married to. The Bible word for that is adultery. Okay? So, it's a, that's the truth of, of the design and desire of God. Let me just talk to some of you who would say you're a follower of Christ. The passage goes on, Romans 1 says this, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what, they ought, what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Listen, for those of you who are followers of Christ, so let me, let me talk to you. For, I, I want you to hear me say, is homosexuality a sin? Sure, it's a sin among other sexual sins, and it's a sin among other sins. That's what I'm saying. It's like, right? It's a sin among other things that if you're a follower of Christ, you would recognize are our, our understanding of God's word is that greed is a sin, gossip's a sin, pride's a sin, materialism's a sin. So yes, it's a sin, right? Homosexuality is a sin. I, 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 I'm convinced of that. It's, it's like, that's what God says, it's a sin. I get concerned with Christian leaders and churches who feel they need to do all kinds of mental and spiritual gymnastics to make it okay, to help God out, to make it more palatable in the 21st century. We don't need to do that. It's okay to be convicted about and trust the truth of the heart of the God who created us and redeemed us. But I want you to hear me say this. Homosexuality is a sin, but it, it's a sin. There's nothing that makes it a sin that's unforgivable. 
or more detestable. It is a sin among sins. We are a community of kind orthodoxy. We're convicted. But in our conviction, we can be kind. In fact, I would say we ought to be kind. And being kind does not equal compromising our conviction. We can be kind in our orthodoxy. Why? Because the same God who said that's a sin is the same God who said love your neighbor as your what? Self. Same God. They bear the image of God the same as you. The same God sent Jesus to die for them just like he did for you and for me. I can be kind to them because I serve a God who's been kind to me. I can be kind and convicted whether they accept what I believe or not, whether they like me or not. You know why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did and does. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Look at what it says in Romans 2. Just look at this. He says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Look at this. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you escape God's judgment? Now, this is the important part. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Doesn't it stand to reason that if we're a called-out community of God following Jesus as our king, filled with the spirit of that God, that somehow this commitment to the orthodox truth of the Bible will result in a kindness that looks like that God? You see, the answer to homo... Listen, listen, I don't want to be confusing this. The answer to homosexuality is not heterosexuality. What I mean by that is this. I don't want you to confuse... I get asked all the time, Dan, homosexuals going to hell? Well, that's, I think it's the wrong question. Because that question kind of presupposes that maybe all heterosexuals are going to heaven. Just because someone's heterosexual doesn't mean and assure they're going to heaven. The answer to my sin, whether it's greed, pride, anger, addiction, or sexual deviation, is found in Romans 1. Here's what Paul said. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. That's our orthodoxy. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. You see, the answer to whatever is the gospel, commit it to it. Commit it to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, this is what's fascinating, guys. We, the church, is called to be a community of kind orthodoxy in a culture that is full of ideological idolatry. And that means several things. We can be convinced and convicted of the truth of what God's Word teaches. And we can be committed to living lives of courageous kindness that point and turn the lights bright on Jesus. We can be committed to turning the lights bright on Jesus instead of just complaining about the dark. We can even love those who might disagree with us. And you know what it means? It means that as a church... We won't simply use God to make our points. But we will worship God and allow Him in our worship of Him to make a difference in us 
that will result in us making a difference in our world. And so, God, we're done. I just am so grateful that um, you give us clear, I think clear, uh, communication that you're a God who loves us so much that Jesus went to the cross and died for us. And I don't know who's watching, whether in Ohio or somewhere else, but maybe that has never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, right there in your living room, in the coffee shop, wherever you're watching this, listening in your car. You can have a conversation with God. God loves you. Jesus died for you in your place. And salvation is found in Christ. Forgiveness of sin found in Christ. And you there in your car, in that coffee shop, can say yes to Jesus right now. Jesus, I believe you love me. I'm a sinner. And I believe you died for me. And I want to trust you as my Savior, as my Lord and my King. Man, if you prayed that prayer, I'd love to hear from you. Email me. I'd love to hear from you. And God, for all of those who are listening that have trusted Christ, we live in interesting times. It's just the truth. No, no, no purpose in sugarcoating that. It's just the truth. And yet I pray that you'd help us to be a called-out community, kingdom community, called out by you, following Jesus, filled with your Spirit, who is committed to a kind orthodoxy, the truth of the word of God that results in lives of courageous kindness that point to Jesus. And I pray that people would see the hope that we have in Christ as a result. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.